Hey y'all, how's everybody doing? I hope you're having a great week and I hope your at-home ministry is, is going well. And uh, I just want to drop in for a little bit on Wednesday as I usually do and, and see if we can get something out of the Word of God. Uh, I'm a little cavalier about that kind of tongue-in-cheek because this is a tough one. Um, I'm, I'm kind of struggling here. But I think this is what God has to say to the church because I've, I've heard the same thing uh, I, I, I saw this in my own studies and I've, I've heard the same thing a couple different places here lately. And so I, I think this is what God wants us to hear today. So I, pr I pray that you'll just see through any shortcomings I have and see what God has to say. Uh, as I usually do, there's a, there's a pretty good chunk of scripture here. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1 primarily. If you want to follow along, I'll put the words on the screen as I read. Uh, and I am going to look at Matthew 23, just a couple quick verses there, and I'll put those on the screen. So you probably don't need to flip there, though I'd encourage you to go back and read the context later. Um, so let me start with, uh, let's say you've got an appointment in Auburn. You've got a doctor's appointment or a, um, I don't know, whatever kind of appointment you have to go to. And so you need to go to Auburn and you need to stop in Alex City for something on the way. So, so you drive down to Alex City and then you're in Alex City. And how do you get to Auburn? Well, you go down 280, right? Okay, so you get to 280 in Alex City, and you, you turn on 280, and you're driving along, you see a sign that says 280 West, and you go, yep, I'm on 280, this is great. Something's not right, is it? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's definitely signs that say we're not doing this the way we should. Better get in the left lane. Make sure we go faster. That, that'll fix it. That's the problem. No, no, still, sign still says 280 West. Hmm. Get back in the right lane. That's the way we used to do it. It was working well then. Nope. Nope. Still going the wrong way, aren't we? Does it matter which lane we're in? If we're going that direction, we could be draw the way on the other side of the road. And if we're going West to on 280 to get to Auburn, it's not going to work out very well for us, is it? Because you got to go east. What do we need to do? We need to turn around and go the right direction. So there's there's all kinds of books out there. There's all kinds of studies. There's all kinds of seminars. There's websites. There's training. There are all kinds of stuff. They talk about the problems in the church and what's going on and how we can do better. Uh, I've read a lot of these. Nowhere near most of them, I'm sure. But I've read quite a few. I've even recommended some. And, and sometimes they're helpful. Sometimes they can, they can identify a problem and make an adjustment. Um, sometimes they can identify little problems and say, yeah, if you fix this, that'd probably help. And that's, that's a good thing. I'm, I'm not necessarily knocking those. But here's the thing. If you're do, completely doing it wrong and you're doing the wrong thing, changing how you do it doesn't help. You're putting a Band-Aid on a hangnail when you've got a bullet wound. It doesn't work, right? Just like changing lanes when you're going the wrong direction on the road. It doesn't help. And that's where I think we really are. The church is going the wrong direction. And I'm not talking about Mellow Valley. I'm not even talking about the Baptist church. I'm talking about Jesus church. We're going the wrong way. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing a letter to the church of Jesus Christ. Specifically at Corinth. There's only one. It's the church. And it's the church at Corinth. And he, he couches this in, you're a part of the church, right from the beginning. 
and uh, that's that's where we're going to start here. So, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sothenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye might be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so start with just a few words. You know, I, I like to get into words and what they mean because that's what tells us what Paul's talking about here, right? Words have meaning. If you understand what the words mean, then when you put them together, you understand what it means, okay? So remember, saints are holy people. The word for saint and the word for holy are the same word. So it's like, it's holy ones, literally. And we have a word for that in English. It's saint, and that, that's fine. Um, use, use the word when it's appropriate, but just remember that, that that's what it means, is holy ones, a holy person, okay? Remember, too, that sanctified is from the same root, and it literally means made holy, or set apart for holy use, set apart for the use of the deity of God, right? So he's, he's using a little bit different take on the same word there to twice say, you're God's. You're set apart. You're different. You're holy. You've been made holy, right? You've been sanctified. You've been called to be saints. You didn't do it. God did it. God made you that way. God set you apart. God called you to be holy as he is holy, right? So clearly he's talking to born-again people, right? We're not even talking about sinners that are attending church. They've been called, right? <clears throat> Jesus is their Lord, right? It's talking about the, and they call upon Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. He's, he's definitely talking about the church. He's talking about servants of Jesus Christ, right? It is interesting, by the way, this is one of his few letters to churches. He doesn't start with a slave of Jesus Christ. He's exerting apostolic authority here in writing this letter. That's something in the tone right from the beginning we might want to keep in mind. Anyway, but he's, he's clearly talking to the church. Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember, Lord, and this is another word we got to talk about. It, we, we use it flippantly because we only use it about Jesus anymore, right? We don't. We don't use that word in our everyday conversation. It's If we're talking about Jesus Christ, Jesus is Lord. Otherwise, we don't even use the word. What does Lord mean? King, master, ruler, slave owner. One who has the right to do what he wants with you, including dispose of you. Meaning he can sell you, he, can, he could kill you, he can beat you, he can, whatever he wants to do. You are his, Lord. And that's why it's used to refer to kings... Because I'm a slave of the king. Let my Lord have mercy on his servant, his slave. Right? You, you see that all through the Old Testament. That's that's the idea here. It's more than just, yeah, you're in charge, whatever. It's it's ownership. Okay? And so he's, he's saying that about the church, about these people he's writing to. So this is going to be important as, as we come down here in a minute. All right, but this is a typical opening. He's 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 hitting some things that he that allude to what he's going to talk about later. It's a good introduction as far as literature goes. 
but it's a typical opening of a letter. It's, it's what we see even in letters outside of the Bible. It's typical from me to you, right? From Paul to the church at Corinth. And then he invokes the deity. Letters outside the New Testament will say, you know, uh, blessings of the gods be upon you, of Zeus the great. You get the idea. It's just the way they wrote letters. And so the Christian letters are no different. Paul does this in all his letters. That's how you write. It's like, and dear John, it was good to see you again. Well, maybe dear John's a bad example. I mean, something else. But you get the idea, right? So he's, he's invoking the deity. He's giving thanks. He does this a lot. Um, and he's, he's clear he's writing to Christians again. This is to the church in Corinth, alongside the church universal, along with all the other Christians, everyone who else calls Christ Lord. And this is significant because he's about to talk about division in that church, that one church. All right. Okay. He, he says he thanks God for them because they've been enriched in all utterance and knowledge. Utterance, speech, words, logos is the Greek word. And knowledge. Gnosis, knowing things, right? They're not lacking any gift. You know, you, you've got you've got all the right words. You know everything. You, you don't lack any gift as you wait for Jesus to return. Sounds like us, right? We know the gospel. We've got plenty of skill in talking about it. That's for sure. We've, we've, we've been told to death, beat to death. Here's the Romans road. Here's how you present the gospel, right? We've got plenty of skill in talking about it. We've got everything we need in the church. We're just waiting for Jesus to come back. And he confirms us until the end, so we'll be blameless when he returns, though we can't be blameless before he returns, right? Do, do, do you hear the sarcasm there? I think Paul's got it too. It's a backhanded compliment. It sounds like a compliment. You're, you're so smart. You're well-spoken. Uh, it's, it's pushing towards sarcasm. You can tell this because Paul goes on in the rest of the letter to talk about these topics and criticize them for their where they are in their progress on these things. He's saying almost exactly the opposite as he goes on. And we're going to see some of that. We're not going to go through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, obviously. It's a little long for one sitting. Although there's a real good use for going through the whole message, like outline form, all at once to see what he's saying overall. Maybe we'll get to do that sometime. I started to do that tonight, and it's not what God wants me to do. So we're going we're gonna to focus here on chapter one. All right. It's sort of like a mother looking at a teenager and saying, I'm so glad you know everything. You're so smart. Is that what she really means? It's kind of what he's doing here. He's saying, you, I'm, I'm glad. I thank God that you, you know everything. You're, you're well-spoken and articulate about everything you know. That's great. You don't lack any gift. You're so blessed in these gifts. Remember, towards the end of the book, he talks about spiritual gifts and he criticizes them for thinking tongues are all that when they're lacking things like prophecy. It's the sarcasm. Okay. Um, notice how many times he said, Lord, with Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, right? Was it three times, four times right here? Three times. He says, Lord, Jesus Christ, your master, Jesus Christ, your slave owner, Jesus Christ, your king, Jesus Christ using all the same word, not, not different ways, but that's the concept. He's repeating it in what's actually three sentences. He says it three times. That's pretty significant because he's going to address idolatry later. And that's the point. Okay. So he's, he's being a little sarcastic. It's like I said, it's a backhanded compliment. Oh, you're so smart. Actually, you're not. Okay. 
All right, let's let's go on and see where he he starts this criticism because the whole book really is criticism of the church and and saying you're screwing this up, you're screwing this up, you're immature, you're fleshly, not spiritual, you're idolaters, you're fornicators, you you're a mess. Here's what you need to fix. Okay, that's that's the gist of First Corinthians. Oh, and you got doctrine wrong too, especially in chapter fifteen. So let's look at where he goes in chapter one now. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again. He, now he's begging, he's beseeching, he's he's saying, "Please, in the name of Jesus." And remember, speaking in the name of Jesus isn't just throwing the name on the end of it. Everything's okay. Brother Ethan talked about this, did a pretty good job of it a few weeks ago. Um, it means I'm doing it on his behalf. I'm acting in his name. It's like having a power of attorney. It's like being an ambassador. You speak for the president, right? It's like having a power of attorney. I can sign your name on something that's legally binding for you. That's what it means to, to do something in Jesus' name. And so Paul's saying, this is Jesus asking through me. I'm asking, but it's really him asking. Okay? That's how serious he is about this. Fourth time he says, Lord Jesus Christ, your king, Jesus Christ, that you have to obey. I'm begging you on his behalf, in his name, that you speak, all speak the same thing. And there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Okay. What's he saying here? Where's Paul going with this? I beg you, in Jesus' name, please stop the divisions. Get on the same page. I hear you're arguing. There's contentions among you. You're following different people. You want to follow Paul? You want to follow Paulus? You want to follow Peter? Look, that's not the gospel. Jesus was crucified for you. Jesus is the name you're baptized in. Not Paul. Not Peter. Not Calvin. Not John Wesley. Not Luther. Doesn't matter. They're men. I'm not criticizing those men any more than he's criticizing Peter here. Okay? We can discuss their theology and what they did with their lives another time. Peter wasn't perfect and neither were they. Neither was Paul. Neither am I. But that's not the point here. The point is, we follow Jesus, not these men. And when we get wrapped up in the ideas of men, we come away from the gospel. That is the point here. He says, it, it, somebody told me, it's been declared to me by, by Chloe's people, that there's you're arguing. There's contentions among you. There's debates. Don't. Okay? Say the same thing. No divisions. Perfectly joined together in mind and judgment. 
Now, the word judgment here isn't the same as the we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, give account of what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. That Not that word judgment. Different thing, okay? <clears throat> Similar, but different thing. It's, it's an opinion, a position, a belief. It can even be a written statement of those beliefs, like a, like a creed or a doctrinal statement, that, that idea. Okay, So think it, it's my judgment that the passage means this, or it's my judgment that we should do it this way. That's, that's how judgment is used here. Okay, It's different Greek words in those two cases. Same English word. It, it doesn't matter. Anyway, the, the point is that that's the concept Paul's conveying here. The, but it is interesting that the, the the Greek words, because this refers right back to the speech and the knowledge. It's the same root words. You've been graced and enriched in words, in speech. Now I'll say the same thing. If God's really graced you with this and you're such good, so good at preaching, why are you preaching different things? Same thing with knowledge. Yeah, you got knowledge of the gospel. Great. Why does everybody say the gospel is something different? Putting it in our context, why does one person say the gospel is that you're elected by God before the foundation of the world and you have no bearing on whether you go to heaven or hell? And one person says, no, 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 it's free choice. God just gives us the opportunity. Which one's the gospel? Or is it neither? Is there some other truth and they both missed it? It's what happens when we follow men. We get conflicting ideas, and then we'll say, oh, we can agree to disagree. There's one gospel, and we need to get on the same page. We need to stop following men and start following God. Jesus is your Lord, so you claim. But you follow different men. Why? Christ isn't divided. He's the Savior, and he's got one church. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians? There's one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father. Those people didn't die for your sins. Why are you falling under different names and following different things? In addition to, or sometimes even instead of, following Christ. Paul's saying he's glad he didn't baptize very many people because he doesn't want to get accused of him making his own disciples and not Jesus' disciples. He says baptizing isn't his job. Preaching the good news about Jesus is his job. The Baptists were awful concerned about baptism. And we should be. It's something that Jesus uh, ordained, of course. But are we more concerned about baptizing people and getting them on the church roll or are we more concerned about preaching the gospel? Are we concerned about converts or disciples? We'll come back to that one in a minute. Let's go on to 17 through 25. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to, unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath God not made the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, 
because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I debated where to stop reading there because it, he goes on for several more verses talking about the same thing and the idea continues for the next couple chapters. So it, it's really kind of hard for me to break it off in the middle of his argument. But I think we've got enough to get the gist of it, get enough for today. We try to mix our own take, our own ideas, our own wisdom into the gospel. We make it of none effect. It's pointless. It's ineffective. It doesn't do its job. It doesn't save. Because that's the point of the gospel, right? To save. So it's a, if it's of none effect, it doesn't have the effect of saving. It doesn't do anybody any good. Why? Because we're preaching our ideas, not the gospel. He goes on to explain the gospel is contrary to human wisdom. Now, I've got to give you a little bit of background about this, this Greeks and Jews here. From the, for a Greek, gods don't die. You're saying your God died on the cross. That, 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 that's, that's foolishness. Gods don't die. Everybody knows that. Well, our God did. Additionally, men can become God, but gods don't become men. For a Greek, that's just not how it works. Gods don't stoop down and become not gods anymore. It doesn't work that way. Well, this one did. He's still God. But you can't be both God and man. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. They're different things. It doesn't make sense to the Greeks. For the Jew, same thing. A man can't be God. Not possible. And and on top of that, the Messiah is a king, not a criminal. Messiah, Messiah comes to free us from Roman oppression. So, it's a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness for the Greeks but it's the power of God to salvation. Whether people are looking for miracles or an articulate argument for the gospel to make sense, it doesn't make sense. It's because it's God's way, not our way. How does it make sense that I've been in rebellion against God, I've offended God, I've done everything within my power to make it to, to, to separate myself from God, and God says, you know what, I love you anyway, I'm going to die for you. It doesn't make any sense. And then I can't ever earn my way back. I can't do enough good to come back. All I've got to do is say, okay. And serve him from this point forward. How, how, does, how does that, 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 that doesn't make sense. It's the gospel, right? God became man. God died. There's a man named Jesus who is God. It, it's foolishness. But it's the truth. That's why it's the power of God. No one can, as he says at the end of the chapter, it's so no one can brag about it. It's so no one can say, oh, look look how smart I am. I figured this all out. Mm, you never figured that out on your own. That's why the Jews didn't recognize what who Jesus was and what he was doing. Because it didn't make sense. They can't take any credit for having it all figured out. Paul makes the same contrast in Romans 1. That being wise, they became two fools. They're too smart for their own good. So is Paul anti-intellectual? Is stupidity a virtue? Are we saying we should try to be dumb? No. And you've heard me say that before if you're in the senior adult Sunday school class. It's not what he's saying. But if I'm be smart, I better make be smart with God's wisdom, which starts with the fear of the Lord, as we read in Proverbs. I need to understand who God is and who I am, that he's God and I'm a creation of his. And he can go, and I'm gone. And that's the starting point of wisdom. And then from that point, 
I can start to understand what his plan is because he can make it whatever he wants, whether it makes sense to me or not. That's his point. If it doesn't make any sense, that, that's not his problem. That's my problem that I don't understand. I have to trust him rather than changing what he says so that it makes sense. But here's the real point. How's all this connected? Paul said sarcastically, I'm glad, and I'm going to put it in my words, but this is, this is the way I see his thought. I'm glad you've got it all together and have no further growth required to be ready to meet Jesus. I'm glad you know everything and know exactly what you're talking about. But you can't even agree on the truth and you're saying different things. Yeah, you're smart, right. Got it. The reason they can't agree is they've missed the point. They're going the wrong direction. They're talking about the wrong thing. They're teaching man's, man's wisdom is God's word. And then they can't agree on what the truth is. Well, there's only one truth. His name is Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. And when we try to figure out what that means to me, and it means something different to you, we've missed out what it means to him, which is the real truth. They're trying to explain the gospel with man's wisdom, and it's not working, and that's what we do too. We try to make sense of the gospel ourselves, and then we think our version of the gospel is actually the gospel. Then what we tend to do is go find verses that'll support our version, even if we have to ignore the verses before and after it to make that work. These words work. How many times have you heard a sermon that says one verse, and then they never cite scripture again? And they just talk about whatever they want, but it's the topic of that verse, so it's close enough. A little too close to home? By the way, I'm not criticizing any one person in particular. No, not a single person in my mind when I'm saying this. I've been all over the place, as you guys know, moved around a lot in the Navy. I've heard an awful lot of people preach in an awful lot of different churches, in an awful lot of different denominations and non-denominational churches. And I've seen the same thing everywhere I go. And that's this. People preach man's wisdom rather than God's. We, we have our ideas. We go find verses that support it. But then we ignore the ones that don't fit. Meanwhile, somebody else has a different perspective. They're going to have their ideas. They're going to find verses that fit their ideas. A lot of times they're the verses we're ignoring. Or, or worse, we just explain them away. We twist them so that they don't mean what they say because that doesn't fit our doctrine. I've actually heard someone who was ordained, who was has has degrees, who has is a respected writer in in Baptist circles, say of a particular passage of scripture, "This is the way I understand that passage of scripture, and we have to interpret the rest of the Bible in light of that." Uh, sorry, sir, but what if you what if you messed that one up? Why don't we interpret that passage in light of the rest of the Bible? That way we can see it by God's view rather than yours. And so then when we talk to each other, we talk past each other because we've got our own ideas in our head and we say, I don't know why you can't see this this way. Well, because they don't have your ideas in their head. And, and we just keep keep confusing each other. We confuse the issues where we keep spouting our own talking points without listening and we certainly don't understand each other. And none of us understand what God has to say. And then on top of that, even worse, 
will teach these ideas of men as equivalent to God's word. Catholics are notorious for this because they don't even pretend. They say that tradition is an authority equivalent to the authority of the Bible. We won't say that as Baptists. We say sola scriptura, God's word alone, it's the only authority. But then we'll say, well, we just don't do it that way. We, we, that's not our tradition. We just don't believe that, even if it's in the scripture. So we'll teach these ideas of men as God's word. And then eventually the people we teach go on to teach themselves. And then those the people they're teaching go on to teach or preach. And the next thing you know, you got a whole bunch of preachers and teachers that can't even understand the word of God because they're so wrapped up in men's traditions that they can't see the truth. They don't even believe the truth when they see it. And then what we'll do when we, we have two people in the same church that disagree on something like this, we'll just split the church. We obviously can't have fellowship. I, I've experienced this. I've seen it. it. Happens more often than you'd like to believe. Putting this another way, and this was something pastor at my last church said, and I, I don't think he'd mind me quoting him on it and attributing it to his name. Uh, in a Bible study on Romans 1, he said, the reason we have trouble understanding Romans is that we've had so much help understanding Romans. And he's exactly right. We need to take God's words for what God says and understand it with the rest of God's word, not our ideas. Let me give you an example. This one will be pretty close to home, and I think you'll uh, you'll see where I'm, what I'm getting at. If you mothers out there, maybe even fathers would say this, you look, you look at your, your child, especially a teenager maybe, and say, go clean your room. What's the command? What are you telling them to do? Does the command go and the clean your room is just extra words thrown in there? Or is the command to clean your room and going as part of doing that? It's true of the Great Commission as well. We preach the Great Commission as if it says, go baptize. How many sermons have you heard that say, the Great Commission says go and we need to go? The Great Commission says make disciples. That's the only imperative there. The Greek verbs are different. You can tell the difference based on the verb tense. It's the only command is to make disciples. You're going to go, and as you go, make disciples. Go make disciples. Make disciples is the command, not the go. How do you make disciples? Well, you start by baptizing them, and then you teach them everything I've commanded you. Nope, just go. Go baptize. There you go. We're good. Not long ago, I heard somebody preach that they, they went up to Birmingham and walking down the street and ran into a couple of little kids and, and said, hot day out, isn't it? Hell's hotter. Wouldn't you rather have a mansion than go to hell? Prayed with them and left. Said, yay, I get to see him in heaven. Never saw him again. Is that the Great Commission? Nobody batted an eye at that. That's not making disciples. That's making converts. And that's what we tend to focus on. 
Well, Jesus has some pretty choice words for people who make converts who who and then and then teach their traditions as the word of God, nullify the word of God with their tradition. Right after telling his disciples, don't be like these people, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses for pretense. Make long prayer, therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, one convert, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Jesus said it, not me, but if the shoe fits. If you're all about making converts to your ideas and your way of doing things, and your way of doing things actually prevents people from understanding what God says, that's not the gospel. That's not the kingdom of heaven. You're keeping people out. Stop it. He says they've missed the point as he continues that conversation about the Pharisees. And so have we. Like I said, the Great Commission says, go make disciples. Baptize them and teach them to do what I've commanded you. We mostly neglect to teach them what I've commanded you. We're horrible about discipleship, as we've discussed before. The whole church is. I've heard Catholics talk about how they're bad at it. I've heard uh, Methodists talk about how they're bad at it. I've heard Presbyterians talk about how they're bad at it. The whole church is bad at making disciples. We like to make converts. We like to baptize people and say, oh, good job, because we can count them. We measure success by counting people the way the world measures success, rather than measuring success by the quality of the disciple. Because you can't measure quality and put it on a report at the end of the year and go or read it out in conference and say, look how many how the quality of our people are. You can't do that. But can you say how many baptisms you had? Yeah. So that's how we measure it. We do it the way men do because it's easy to do rather than do it God's way. So we neglect making disciples. And when we do it, what we do is we teach them our traditions rather than the word of God. We teach them the way we do things rather than what God says. You don't believe me? Let's see, let's see what we neglect. When's the last time you heard a sermon on Acts chapter 2 about the Holy Spirit coming on the church and speaking in tongues and preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost? You know the passage. You've heard it before somewhere. How often do you hear sermons on it? That's the establishment of the church. That's the power of God to preach the gospel. And we neglect it. Why? It doesn't fit what we want to believe. What about Hebrews 10 and God's inevitable judgment of willful sin by those who know the truth? He says there's no sacrifice left for that sin that's willful after you know the truth. When's the last time you heard a sermon on that one? It gets ignored. People don't want to hear it. In the book we're in, what about 1 Corinthians 10? Paul says Old Testament events, these things happen with the Israelites for our benefit so we can learn from their mistakes. Don't be like them, church, and fall in the wilderness and not enter the promised land. That same message is repeated in Hebrews 3 and 4. When's the last time you heard somebody preach that? I'm telling you what's in the scripture. You decide how it needs to affect theology. What about the passage I'm in right now? How often do you hear a denominational per church preach we shouldn't have divisions in the church 
and that those divisions exist as a result of following man's ideas rather than the Word of God. Not real often, huh? Wonder why. This is the problem with the church. I'm not talking about our church. I think I've made that clear by mentioning multiple different denominations. And it's not just in the denominations. There's some that say, oh, denominations are the problem. We reject denominations. We're in our own little world every year. And we, we say there's, the denominations are bad and we're better than everybody else. No, you're just dividing a different way. We've missed the point. We've missed the heart of God just as badly as the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We got a piece of the gospel, but we mix it with all kinds of other ideas and traditions. And then we want to claim that we've got it right and everybody with different ideas and, got, and traditions, they've got it wrong. Newsflash, we're probably all wrong. Paul talks a little later in chapter 3 about Jesus being the only foundation. And you better be careful how you build on it. People usually preach that passage about our lives. That, you know, Jesus is the foundation and I build my works on it. And, and I, you know, I'm going to be judged. you got to look at the context. It's this. It's building the church. It's the doctrine. It's are you building on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ with things that last because they're of God? Or are you building on it with your own ideas and following men? And you know that that's the context because he finishes talking about that at the end of that same chapter. Right after he talks about this building with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Remember the passage? I'm sure you've heard that one preached. Bet you haven't heard it preached that if you're following men, you're building with wood, hay, and stubble. But that's what Paul's actually saying if you read the whole thing. When we build with our ideas, it's going to burn. Only thing that lasts is God's plan. God's gospel. The good news that he loves us and he wants a relationship with us. And that's what it's all about. It's not about go to church. It's not about don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew. Don't cuss. It's not about being a part of a political party. It's not about your position on social issues. I'm not saying those things aren't important. I'm saying that what it's about is God wants a relationship with you. Because he loves you. And how that relationship works is explained pretty clearly in Scripture. It's a mystery. It's contradictory because God's more complicated than we are. But we can't take one side of it and say this is the truth and ignore the rest and expect that to work out okay. That's going to burn. That's men's ideas. When they're tested, they don't stand the fire. And the fire he's talking about in that passage isn't hell. It's testing. We've been talking a lot about persecution here lately in Sunday school in 1 Peter. Talking about testing and trials and, and persecution and suffering. You've heard me say before that that's coming. America's not special. We're, we're going to get it. And, and in some ways, that's already here. And we've talked about that a little bit too. we got to brace ourselves. we got to be ready. And I'm not talking about being a prepper, although it's certainly not a bad idea to have a little food on hand in case the store's out. We saw that at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, right? That's just common sense. But what I'm talking about preparing is spiritually. we got to strip away those man-made ideas and rebuild with the word of God so that when the forest fire sweeps through, there's something that can stand up to it. Paul says there, that man will be saved, but as if through fire. It's like he's by the skin of his teeth. Or, as Peter puts it, scarcely. Barely. 
It's not, not the way I want to go. So to come back to my analogy, if you're you're going the wrong way on 280, realize you're headed west towards Birmingham when you're trying to go go to Auburn. Do you change lanes or do you turn around? You're going to turn around. That's the kind of repentance the church has got to have. That's what we need right now. It's going to be too late soon. Fire's going to come. Testing's going to come. Time for building will be over. We need to turn to God. We need to realize that our man-made ideas are not the gospel. And go read what he says. And rediscover what the gospel actually is. And we need to establish that relationship with him in prayer, in fasting, in suffering, in discipline. And come together with other brothers and sisters in Christ who will do the same thing. I'm not saying it's my way. I'm not saying I've got it figured out. Because I've been filled up with men's ideas just as much as anybody else. I'm trying to sort through them and figure out what I need to get rid of. But I know this, there's plenty there. But this is the kind of repentance the church needs. We got to turn around and go the other direction. Not just say I'm going the long long I'm going the wrong way. So let's just adjust a little. It's not going to work. So here's what I'll ask you. Do you. Will you commit with me today to put aside ideas, traditions, arguments, wisdom of men and seek God? Will you pray with me today that God will help us do that? Are you going to say, you know what? I'm comfortable in what I do. I'll just keep going the wrong way and hope it works out. We've been talking about hope lately, but that's not the kind of hope you want to have. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the warning that you give us. God, I'm sorry where I've taught things that are my idea, not yours. I'll say it plainly. As a teacher, I've screwed it up. I ask your forgiveness. God, I pray that even if I've done that in this session, that somehow your word will come through. What you have to say to your people will come through. God, let your sheep hear your voice, I pray. Help us to discern between your voice and the voice of another. And help us to follow you, to hear your voice and follow it. So that you can protect us. You can keep us. Because we're obeying you as our Lord and Master. God, give us your wisdom. And show us where we value ours and help us to put it away. God, you, you said at the end you'll separate the sheep from the goats. And I pray that you do that in your church now. That you make a distinction between those that are following you and those that are playing games. That are going the wrong way. I pray that you'll make that clear. So that those that will follow you, those that will trust you, those that you're truly their Lord, can come together and serve you and be effective and be the church you've called us to be. God, I love you. And I pray for Mella Valley that you'd not only let your truth be proclaimed there, but that you'd bring others from outside to come there to hear your voice. God, help us to be the church you've called us to be. Help us to serve you 
and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, y'all. Again, I know that's a tough one. And uh, it's tough for me getting ready to do it and, and saying it. But I believe it's what God has to say to us. And my commitment to you is I'm going to do everything within my power to, to sift through those ideas that are mine or belong to somebody else and get down to what God has to say. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you Sunday. Until then, God bless.